Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Over the last four months, the Israeli war on Gaza has spilled over into the rest of the Middle East, from Lebanon to Iraq. But the most dramatic example has been the link between events in Palestine and Yemen. Ansar Allah, the movement known as the Houthis, imposed a blockade on ships going to Israel until there was a ceasefire. In response, the US and the UK have carried out airstrikes on Houthi positions in Yemen. The Houthis say they won't be deterred by military action. Our guest today is Helen Lackner. She's one of the leading experts on modern Yemen and the author of several books about the country. Helen has been a guest on Long Reads before when we spoke about the history of Yemen in 2021. This time I spoke to her on Tuesday, February 20th. Helen, thanks for joining us. Before we come to the relation between what's been happening in Yemen and the Israeli war on Gaza, could you give people a short introduction to the way things stood on the eve of October the 7th? What was the balance of forces in the long-running war between Ansar Allah, the movement known as the Houthis, and their opponents? What was the position of the Saudi government? What was its motivations? And what were the prospects of a deal that might end the long-running conflict in Yemen? Yeah, well, thank you for bringing this up because most of these issues are now largely forgotten with what's happened in the last few months. And indeed, by last October, things appeared to be moving. The official truce between the two sides had ended a year previously, but basically had been held effectively. The direct negotiations between the, the Saudis and Ansar Allah had advanced very considerably. And it was widely believed that an agreement was going to be finalized very, very quickly. There were still a few remaining issues, but the fundamentals appeared to have been agreed. The following weeks, it looked as if every effort was being made by the US and the UN and the Omanis to try and make sure that some deal was made before it became too late, which of course it now is. And the nature of the main concession that the Houthis appeared to have made, because some people said that they had uh, changed their minds on that or not fully agreed, was that they were allowing the Saudis to sign the agreement as mediators rather than as participants, which is an extremely important issue because as mediators, they would be effectively mediators. And as participants, they would then be liable for accusations and attacks for the basic many war crimes that had taken place mainly between 2015 and 2020. So that was a really important development. The other important development, which is worth mentioning because it's particularly relevant now, is that they had agreed to pay all government salaries, including those of Houthi and Sahara military and security people, for at least one year. 
Now, this is particularly relevant now with the designation because it's difficult to imagine how the Saudis would make a standard ordinary bank transfer to Sana'a at this point, should the agreement still be possible, which is, of course, a very different issue. Now, the other elements that are really important, of course, is that this agreement, if it had happened, would really have signed and sealed the very, very considerable weakness of the internationally recognized government, which is currently represented by officially by the Presidential Leadership Council, and which has also been existing since April 2022. But basically, it would have been completely marginalized. However, this agreement, of course, is that it would actually have been made directly between the Houthis and the PLC if the Saudis were signing as mediators. And I think it was last October, I can't remember the exact date, the PLC had been summoned to Riyadh and basically were told what the deal was going to be and what they were going to sign. They were not consulted, they were just informed. And a similar situation goes for the United Nations Special Envoy and his office and all the work he's been doing, which is basically they would be given the remaining issues to be sorted, i.e. to then sort out an intra-Yemeni deal that would solve the the long-term issues. And of course, by definition, this would also have sealed the extreme considerable extra strength and power of the Houthis in the situation. So I think, you know, this is really more or less where things stood Towards the end of the year, if one ignores the whole changes that occurred as a result of the Gaza war. So coming then to the point about the Houthi attacks on Red Sea shipping, which initially they said they were carrying out against Israeli-bound ships and subsequently in response to the military campaign by the US and the UK, they broadened the list of targets to include ships associated with those states as well. What was their motivation to carry out these attacks? Why, out of all the various governing states and regimes in North Africa and the Middle East, did they stand out as a state body, even if not recognised by some of the regional players, but a de facto state body that was taking direct military action in the name of solidarity with Palestine? And could you say something about the history of the relationship between Yemen and Palestine and why there might be a particular interest in what's happening in Gaza on the part of people in Yemen? Yeah, I think I can talk about why the Houthis have done what they've done. I think it's much more difficult at this point for me to point out or to discuss why everyone else has not done what they haven't done. I think the Houthi actions were based on on two fundamental elements. The first one is that ideologically, they are very firmly committed towards supporting of Palestine. Now, it is also equally true that basically almost any Yemeni you speak to on whichever political side he or she might be will be supportive of Palestine and anti-Israeli. I think that's, you know, it would be extremely difficult to find a Yemeni who was pro-Israeli. There are one or two, in fact, who've publicized the fact, but they are really very marginal elements of the southern separatist groups. 
But generally, if you're talking about Yemenis, they are very much supportive of Palestine. And if you look back into history, even prior to the Republican movements, if you look back to 1947, even, you know, the Imamate, which was the kind of royalist element that was running the northern part of Yemen, basically walked out of the UN meeting where the decision was made to create Israel. So you have a very strong element. And throughout, if you look throughout in the period of Ali Abdullah Saleh in the Yemen Arab Republic, the socialist period, the PDRY, you know, they have all been at all times supportive of Palestine and anti-Israeli. Indeed, if you look at 1982, when the Israelis attacked Lebanon, that was one of the few occasions when the rulers of the PDRY and the rulers of the YAR got together to try and do something to solve the problem. They failed, but, you know, they did try. And again, I remember at the time being in Sanai noticing that actually at least the Yemenis are doing something by comparison with what uh, others are not doing. So I think you have a long-lasting, clear support of every single regime you've ever had in Yemen for Palestine. And I think the only notable exception to this, you know, is today some of the southern separatists who are actually, who have actually expressed, you know, looking forward to their visits to Israel and other similar things. And that is, I think, largely due to their connection with the United Arab Emirates or maybe trying to go even further than the UAE in uh, being anti what everybody else supports, basically. The first major action taken by Ansar Allah was the capture of the galaxy leader in November. Franz van Katre had this report. The cargo ship was sailing through the Red Sea, a crucial maritime shipping route, when it was reportedly seized by Houthi rebels. They say they hijacked the ship over its connection with Israel and took its crew hostage. We urge all countries whose nationals operate in the Red Sea to refrain from any work or activity with Israeli ships or ships owned by Israelis. Israel insists the Galaxy Leader is British-owned and Japanese-operated, but public shipping databases link the ship's owners to Raycar Carriers, a group founded by Abraham Ungar, who's one of the richest men in Israel. Earlier this week, the day before I was speaking to Helen, the Houthis claimed credit for another attack on a cargo ship registered in Britain, as Channel 4 News reported. This is the British-registered cargo ship, the Ruby Mar. She was off the coast of Aden when she became the target of Yemen's Houthi rebels. The results of the operation were that the ship was severely damaged, leading to its complete halt. Due to the significant damage suffered by the ship, it is now at risk of sinking in the Gulf of Aden. We took care during the operation to ensure the safe evacuation of the ship's crew. The Lebanese-operated ship took on water but did not sink. The Houthis, who also claimed they'd shot down a US drone, said they would continue to attack commercial shipping until the blockade of Gaza is lifted. The UK condemned what it called the reckless attack. Defence Secretary Grant Shapps was asked if more Royal Navy ships should be sent to the Red Sea. We will always look at what's happening in the sea, in the Red Sea. I've been there to uh, see, uh, meet the crews myself, and we'll make a judgment based on uh, the reality on the ground. We do know and we welcome uh, now the input from uh, a conglomeration of EU countries. 
He's talking about a naval mission announced by EU members today, albeit a strictly defensive one. Operation Espides, or SHIELD, will chaperone commercial vessels. Do we have a clear sense of how the action taken by Ansarallah in the Red Sea is perceived by ordinary Yemenis, whether or not they live in the territory that is currently governed by the Houthis, and indeed how it's seen by people across the wider Middle East? The people are largely supportive of what the Houthis are doing simply because they are doing something. And they're not only doing something, but if you look at it internationally, they're actually doing, they're being the most effective action. I mean, the fact that they seriously damaged the ship yesterday is exceptional, given that, you know, there's been the one and only effective result after many, many, many strikes, except for the taking of the galaxy leader in November. So, you know, the fact that they are actually trying to do something is something that is widely, widely supported. At the same time, people are concerned because obviously, you know, what it's meant is a resumption of bombing. Up to 2022, they were being bombed by the Saudis. Now they're being bombed by the Americans and the Brits. And my you know, from what I hear of people on the ground, is that the type of things that are falling on people in on Yemen now are much more powerful and much certainly, you know, create far more damage than what was dropped earlier. So obviously people are concerned. And there have been cases reported of people actually trying to prevent the Houthis from putting launching pads or launching whatever it is you use to in their locations because they don't want to be bombed themselves. So, you know, it's obviously a, 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 a serious case of mixed feelings. I think people are supportive, but at the same time, they are, they are fearful and they're not only fearful about the direct bombing and the possible impact of, you know, basically physical damage and death, but also of the side effects. And that, you know, brings up all the other issues of the humanitarian situation and the designation. The other important thing is that the support for what the Houthis are doing is not just in the areas which they rule, and also in the areas which they rule, they are not fundamentally very popular. People do not like being ruled by the Houthis. The kind of rule that they have is extremely authoritarian. It's also very exploitative. I mean, people are being taxed and forced to pay for all kinds of things. It's extremely biased for its supporters and not for showing little concern for the population as a whole. So what it has done, and that's the second aspect of really of the action, is that it has boosted their popularity enormously within Yemen, let alone beyond Yemen, where, you know, if you ask the person in the street, even on the average Palestine demonstration, if you'd ask them in October, what is a Houthi, they would have turned around and said, you know, what on earth are you talking about? You know, whereas now everybody knows who they are. And that has not just boosted them internally, but it's obviously making them feel much more powerful and much more effective. And I think, you know, this again, it's another very double-edged sword because on the one hand, most of us, I think, would be relatively positive about the fact that they're doing things in support of Palestine. But at the same time, it's very important to remember that the Houthi regime is not the kind of socialist or even social democratic regime that any one of us would like to live under. In terms of the Yemeni political stage, of course, there are various parties and factions and movements. 
that have been strongly opposed to Ansar Allah and many of them have fought against them with guns in hand in various coalitions over the last few years. Have those actors taken public stands on what the Houthis have done in relation to Red Sea shipping and in relation to Gaza? And on their part, is there a need to balance their own opposition to the Houthis against this general feeling of popularity in Yemen and and further afield for what they've done specifically in relation to Palestine? Yes, they do indeed. And that's precisely what's happening at the moment, which is on the one hand, the PLC and its leader and all the other factions are making statements that are pro-Palestinian and that are supported, you know, saying we have to help Gaza. And at the same time, they are now calling for the US and the UK to expand and increase their bombing and indeed to go beyond bombing. I mean, they've made official statements. The president of the PLC and some of his, he has seven vice presidents, so there's a fair amount of options. You know, some of these vice presidents have also stated, you know, what we need is not just US and UK bombing, but we also need, you know, much more military support for us on the ground. I think they not I haven't come across anyone who's explicitly asked for the Americans or the Brits to send their troops on the ground, but they've certainly asked for, you know, much more military support in terms of equipment and training. And they've also, I mean, uh, only two days ago, I think it was at the Munich conference that one of them was, and that was the president, was saying, you know, we, you're blaming the Europeans and everyone and the US for supporting the Houthis, no, which is not what they were doing, but basically what they were saying, you know, st- cut the funds and cutting the funds means stopping the humanitarian support. And that also basically means creating a, a much worse humanitarian situation than the one which already exists, which although it's nowhere near as horrific as what's going on in in Gaza, you you still have a very, very major humanitarian problem in in Yemen and, you know, very serious cases of of hunger and underfunding of the humanitarian situation. So basically the, the PLC have been, they've been explicitly asking for more US and UK intervention and and for a reduction in what support they say is going to the Houthis, which is not intended to go to the Houthis. It's intended to be humanitarian support for the population who are in need of this support. In terms of the regional political stage, what has been the response of some of the states that have been particularly engaged with Yemen? That might be a euphemistic way of putting it, but states such as Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates Have they taken a clear position on what the Houthis have been doing? How have they responded to pressure or overtures from the US and its allies to take a position? They're basically trying to hedge things, I think, to to keep out. I mean, the Saudis have basically said, you know, asked the Americans, the UK to exercise restraint. The Emiratis have said that they don't want the US to use their bases to to launch their attacks. And if you notice, the the UK attacks have been leaving up to now from the base in Cyprus, whereas the US ones have been leaving from the aircraft carriers, I think, or, or beyond. So basically, the, you know, the local the regional states have avoided being 
directly involved in the attacks. I haven't seen anything, any specific statements of objection or support, but that doesn't mean they haven't been there. I think the important one to mention is Oman, because Oman has been the chief mediator, particularly once the UN special envoy was more marginalized, and they have firmly refused to support the Americans and have very firmly stated that, you know, they don't believe in those, um, in these new operations, because if you look at the operations that are taking place in the Red Sea, I have to write a list down to, to keep up with them. There's now three US connected ones. And now starting yesterday, there's one EU one <laughs> starting. So so basically, I think Oman has been the explicit, most explicitly against any of the interventions. The Saudis, I think, are just basically, uh, as I said, calling, officially, they've said calling for restraint, and certainly not encouraging the use of their territory for anything. So they are very, you know, they're concerned. I mean, the, the, there's odd conversations mentioning that the negotiations are still ongoing, but I think it's widely accepted that the Saudi, Houthi and Yemeni negotiations are basically no longer operational, at least for a long time. I mean, people who talk about it sort of, some say it's in the coma, others say it's sort of dead, you know, it's basically, there's nothing is likely to be happening on that while this is going on. 60 Minutes broadcast a report on US military action against Yemen this week that had the flavour of an infomercial. The introduction strongly emphasised the idea that Ansar Allah is an Iranian proxy force. After Hamas launched its deadly terrorist attack in Israel this past October and Israel began its unrelenting war in Gaza in response, President Biden warned Iran and its proxies in the Middle East to stay out of it. One of those groups decided instead that it was all in. That group is a Shia militia from Yemen, known as the Houthis. Yemen is the poorest country in the Middle East, but its 1,200 miles of coastline leads in and out of the Suez Canal the primary route by sea between Europe and Asia, responsible for a trillion dollars a year in global trade. So when the Houthis began to attack commercial ships in solidarity with Hamas, President Biden faced a crisis in the Red Sea and sent the U.S. Navy into its first major fight of the 21st century. There was the same focus on Iran when the presenter, Nora O'Donnell, spoke to a U.S. military official. Could the Houthis do this without Iranian support? No. For a decade, the Iranians have been supplying the Houthis. They've been resupplying them. They're resupplying them as we sit here right now uh, at sea. We know this is happening. They're advising them and they're providing targeting information. This is crystal clear. Are there members of Iran's elite Revolutionary Guard Corps that are actually on the ground in Yemen providing intelligence and targeting? The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is inside Yemen, and they are serving side by side uh, with the Houthis, advising them and providing targeting information. And so what have we done to degrade that capability? Yeah, that's a, that will obviously end up being a policy decision. Our role at this point is to simply be ready and continue to be uh, aggressive in exercising our right to self-defense. Do these offensive U.S. airstrikes against these Houthi targets in Yemen risk escalating this conflict? Yeah, I don't think so. We're targeting those platforms that are targeting us. If we were to 
look at the calendar, right, since October 7th, the surging of U.S. forces to the Red Sea, and yet they keep firing back. They keep seeming to be opportunistic in their response. Is the U.S. Navy, the Fifth Fleet, are the actions having an effect? It's very clear that we are degrading their capability, and every single day they attempt to attack us, we're eliminating and disrupting them in ways that are meaningful and I do believe have an impact. How long does this go on? Well, I have a pretty clear uh, end game in mind, and that is the restoration of the free flow of commerce and safe navigation in the Southern Red Sea. The other side of that regional question is the relationship between Ansar Allah and Iran. And it's very common in Anglophone media to refer to Iranian-backed Houthis. And the implication is that they are merely a proxy force, that they are acting in line with instructions or directions from Tehran. And very much the same thing is said about other movements in the wider Middle East, including Hamas, including Hezbollah in Lebanon, including militias in Iraq. How would you describe the actual content of the relationship between the Houthis and the Iranian state? And how does it compare with some of those other movements such as Hamas and Hezbollah that are sometimes referred to collectively as the axis of resistance? I mean, they all claim to be part of the axis of resistance and they all, you know, this isn't, this, I don't think it's something that they regard as an insult in the way the Iran back this, that and the other, which is extremely tiresome and this sort of single word operation. It's very different, basically. I think if you look at each one of these organizations, it has a very different relationship with Iran. Some are closer and some are less close. Some are more cases of alliances. In other cases, I think there is a more of a relationship of authority uh, between Iran and their activities. I think it's widely believed, and I suspect it's probably true, that you know Hezbollah's relationship with Iran is much closer and much more that of, you know, has a level of authority in it. Uh, I think it's clear that, for example, the case of Hamas, it's clear that Hamas had not informed the Iranians of what they were doing last October. And there's been various reports of mixed views on that from the Iranian point of view. And I think, again, if you look in, in Iraq, there's very different organizations with different levels of uh, closeness to Iran, and I don't know enough about them to go into many details. I think the particularly interesting case about the Houthis is that really, that if anything, you can call it an alliance. If you look at the relationship between the Houthis and Iran, prior to the war that started officially in 2015, it was a much more limited relationship. And indeed, if you look back into the period when the Houthis were fighting the Ali Abdullah Saleh regime, there was a period when Ali Abdullah Saleh tried to persuade the Americans that this was the, all the Iranians, and the Americans simply just weren't listening and said, this is nonsense. However, from 2015 onwards, the relationship has become much closer. And the Houthis are benefiting from some fancy technology, technical equipment for their drones and missiles that comes from Iran and whether how much of it actually physically comes from Iran or how much it's a case of blueprints coming from Iran and that they're 
modeling the stuff at home, you know, is something I don't really know. But it's very clear that the missiles and the different elements of the drones have had some Iranian technical support. It's also very clear that the Houthis have learned a lot and can do a lot of it on their own and don't actually need as much Iranian technical support now as they did earlier. They might still need some pieces of you know, very sophisticated technology. But overall, I think you have an increasingly close alliance. Iranian Shiism is having a considerable influence on the Houthis ideologically. The Houthis are basically Zaydis, which is a fiver branch of Shiism as opposed to the 12 branches that you have in in Iran. But the Houthis... And and the Zaydis have formed the majority of the population in the part of the Yemen that they control, basically in the highlands. And if you look at the whole of Yemen, they form between probably about 30 to 35 percent of the whole population. But the Houthis are trying to differentiate themselves from mainline or mainstream Zaydism. And the way they're doing that is by adopting some of the rituals and beliefs and activities that are, that have come from Iran. So they're celebrating, you know, various religious occasions, which were previously basically ignored by Zaydis. So there is an, you know, an ideological influence at, at the, at that level. I don't think that is particularly relevant to the military situation. In terms of the military situation, you know, it is the technology which is helping them. And it's possible that they also got some help of in terms of information about which ships are more likely to be suitable targets for them than others. So you have that level of relationship. But at the same time, it's true now, and I think it's been true throughout, that the Houthis do what they believe they should be doing. And if that happens to coincide with what the Iranians want, then that's fine. And if it doesn't coincide, then that's just tough for Iran. The Houthis carry on doing their thing. And so, you know, the the, the sort of proxy terminology is, I think, really particularly, you know, it's, it's obviously very politically motivated. And, you know, we now have a situation where Iran is the devil incarnate in our part of the world. And therefore, you know, anything that anybody doesn't like is Iran-backed. But it's important to differentiate and to have a more realistic view of, of what is actually happening. I mean, having having a real access to what's happening, a real understanding of what's happening may, you know, have a different impact on the kind of decisions that are being made. If we look at what the US and its allies have done in response to the actions by Ansarallah, there's been two aspects to that. The first was to pull together a somewhat broader coalition of states that agreed to deploy naval forces in the Red Sea in the waters off Yemen, or to take some role, some participation in that coalition. And then the move to actually carry out airstrikes, including airstrikes on Yemeni soil, that's been restricted to the US and the UK, of course, its closest ally in the Middle East. Now, the involvement of the UK in particular has historical resonances that many people in Britain perhaps would not be familiar with, but presumably would be very much appreciated for people in Yemen, given that 
Britain had a colonial presence there in Aden for a long period of time and was eventually ejected from Aden in the 1960s by the efforts of the independence movement. And more recently, I think it would also probably be not widely understood by people in the US and in Britain, the extent to which they were directly involved in the Saudi war efforts over the past few years. For example, you had British military personnel in the Saudi control room helping to call in strikes and you had engineers from British aerospace on the ground who were vital in keeping Saudi warplanes in the sky and other aspects like that. Probably not as widely understood again in Britain as it as it certainly would be in Yemen. So first of all, what has been the impact and what is likely to be the impact in, in purely military terms of the action that the US and the UK and their allies have taken? And more broadly, what is going to be the political impact that it has on the situation in Yemen? Is it going to have any deterrent impact on what the Houthis have been doing? I think the military impact was very neatly summarized by President Biden himself. When he was asked, are the strikes on the Houthis working? And the answer was no. And will they continue? And the answer was yes. The airstrikes in Yemen are working. Well, when you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. So I think, you know, and I mean, the last I heard from some American official was that, you know, they're hoping that they will degrade the Houthi capacity over time. So I think they obviously must be destroying a lot of stuff and they've killed a few Houthi operatives. So there's no doubt that they are managing to destroy some of the equipment. But on the other hand, from the Houthi point of view, and this is clearly disproved by what happened yesterday, the Houthis don't actually have to be able to strike and damage a ship. All they have to do is to threaten. And to do that, you know, the homemade basic drones and, and missiles are quite sufficient. You know, they don't need highly sophisticated stuff. And I've no idea whether what struck that British ship yesterday was sophisticated or not. I mean, I have no no idea whether it will ever be announced, and I certainly wouldn't be able to understand it if it was. So I think, you know, militarily, this will continue, and it will continue destroying equipment, but it will not stop the Houthis from launching things against the ships. And it's very clear, I mean, politically, it has an impact in the sense that it's certainly worsening the reputation of both Britain and the US within Yemen amongst almost everybody except the very, very few people who are calling for the extension and increase of this, which, as I mentioned earlier, is mainly, you know, the internationally recognized government and the most trident in this respect are the southern separatists. Now, whether the southern separatists are recalling the period of the British rule in Aden, which did, after all, end in 1967, so it was, you know, a couple of generations back by now, I don't know. But certainly there's no doubt that the some the particular one southern separatist faction is the most, and which is close to the UAE, is definitely the most 
anti or the most supportive of the US and UK strikes, I would say, and is the only one that where some of its elements have actually expressed positive statements about Israel. So I think you have a, you know, politically in the in the medium to to long term, I don't see that in any way it would affect particularly that any changes in the in the situation with respect to an agreement or to the end of the internal war, mainly because I don't think they were particularly relevant to these negotiations in the first place. So. You know, they had this, they have their, the US has its special envoy, Lender King, who've been involved now since the beginning of the Biden administration. But I haven't particularly noticed him having any effective impact. I mean, he's got much less influence than the UN uh, special envoy, I think. And even the latter at the moment hasn't got as much influence as he would like to have or as he maybe ought to have. So I think on the political front, you know, they the main, uh, again, the main element, I think, where these things come up really is, again, the issue of humanitarian support. Because at the moment, if you're looking at the financial support that's going into Yemen, it's primarily in the humanitarian sector. And that is indeed primarily where the U.S. involvement is very heavy. I mean, obviously, other than the military. And uh, the U.K. role is also significant, if not particularly impressive. Speaking in mid-January, Al Jazeera's political analyst Marwan Bashara put the airstrikes on Yemen in a wider historical context for the Middle East. We've seen this happening again and again over the past so many decades. In fact, why don't we do sort of a history crash course, 60 years in 60 seconds. Today, the Houthis are the enemy and they deserve to be bombed in Yemen for daring to confront the United States. In 1958, or in the late 50s, Nasser of Egypt was considered the new Hitler, and he was to be confronted already after 1956, aggression against Egypt by Britain and Israel. 1968, the new enemy was Arafat and the Palestine Liberation Organization. In the late 70s, the boogeyman was Khomeini and Iran. In the late 80s, it was Saddam and Iraq. In the 1990s, it was Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. The following decade, it was all all together. It was Al-Qaeda, it was the Taliban, it was Hezbollah, it was all the same. The following decade, it was ISIS, Daesh, and again, more of the same, Houthis and so on and so forth. So every decade, every few years, we have a boogeyman in the Middle East, we have an enemy, And the people in the Middle East are asked to take sides. Are you with Britain, United States, and Israel? Or are you with the boogeyman, whoever they are, right? The problem is that each one of those enemies was somehow brought to power or was somehow became an enemy because of some kind of military intervention, coup d'etat, or an interference by Britain, France, and Israel. Each one of those cases was prompted by an invasion, a coup d'etat of any sort. Why Khomeini in 79? There was a coup d'etat in the 1950s. Why Arafat? Because there was an occupation. Why Saddam Hussein? More of the same. Why Iran, Khomeini? Again, the idea of siding with Iraq. Suddenly we had the uh, Ahmadinejad, right? Why? Because Iran suddenly became strong and Iraq became weak. 
any which way you look, the Houthis became stronger because there was Iran and there was a new axis of resistance. You might call them a new axis of evil if you want, but in the end of the day, all of these enemies and all these threats that somehow keep visiting us in the region and called by the United States an imminent threat to Western interests or to Israeli security were created by the United States, Britain, and, and Israel. So the, it begs the question after these 60 seconds, are we going to continue with more of the same? Bombings of Gaza, bombings of Lebanon, bombings of Iraq, bombings of Syria, bombings of Yemen, bombings of Afghanistan, and always coming back to the same results. It's almost like a sign of craziness, a sign of madness. You try these military things, you try to designate enemies one decade after another decade, but you come back with even more enemies, more potent, more dangerous, willing to do even more for their rights and for their security and for their peace. You're claiming to bang them for their security and for their well-being. They disagree. Going back to your point about the humanitarian situation in Yemen, agencies the UN had said that Yemen was going through the world's single worst humanitarian crisis as a result of the conflict over the last decade and all its ramifications, although it has subsequently been overtaken in that fairly bleak competition by Gaza as a result of the Israeli onslaught. What impact would you say the US-UK military action is likely to have on that crisis and the efforts that are being made by various bodies to alleviate it? Yemen stopped being the worst humanitarian crisis in the world, not because of any improvements in Yemen, and indeed not just because of Gaza. I mean, basically, it's been overtaken by other equally or awful situations, if you're talking, I mean, Sudan is is a prime example. Uh, Afghanistan is the other biggest example. And anyway, there's, there's plenty we can go to. But I think the important thing to note is that the humanitarian situation in Yemen has not improved. Last year, the UN's humanitarian fund response plan was financed at 38% which is significantly lower from what from what has been financed in previous years. Now, although that is a pretty uh, depressing figure, it actually is the average for the humanitarian response plans worldwide last year, which were basically all financed at about 38%. Though it is worth noting that some of the countries which are at war also have had better rates of financing. The... The new humanitarian response plan, which was published very belatedly earlier this month, you know, requires a lot less money than it did last year. And of course, at this point, we have no idea how much of it will be financed. Um, The annual pledging conference, which is usually where different states announce what they will or they propose to finance has not yet been announced. I'm assuming it will happen sometime in the next couple of months. So, you know, you have a serious crisis on the humanitarian front. And the areas, of course, that are in worst need are the areas under Houthi control, which, of course, in addition, it's also where 70% of the population live. So the majority of the population live under Houthi control, and therefore the majority of those in need of humanitarian support are also under Houthi control. 
And so that has major implications and creates a lot of problems for the humanitarian sector because the Houthis do not make it easy for them to work. In fact, they make it extremely difficult and they don't facilitate things. And they also very much uh, do their best to control the humanitarian aid and therefore direct it more to those who support them rather than to others. It's also important to notice that similar moves are taken in other parts of the country. But these are, you know, relevant factors at the moment. And I think, you know, partly the, the very serious collapse of the economy is continuing. There's not been any significant improvements. The Houthis have a significant regular income coming both from the customs duties and the taxation that they impose on everybody. And of course, the taxation and the customs duties involve not just commercial imports, but also humanitarian imports. And again, it needs to remember that 90% of Yemen's staples, i.e. rice, uh, wheat, etc., you know, are imported, though it was pretty self-sufficient in things like vegetables and some meats. But basic foods are really mostly imported. And again, on this one, you know, the Red Sea war and the increase, of course, in the costs of transporting things in the Red Sea are going to increase the price of things in Yemen, as indeed in other places sooner rather than later, or in some cases later rather than sooner. And I think it's also really, really noticeable, you know, that the main funders of humanitarian support in Yemen, the number one funder has been the US. And I think, you know, that is a very important thing. One other thing we haven't talked about, you know, is the designation of the Houthis as uh, a foreign terrorist organization. Now, that has serious implications not for the humanitarian sector, but for the humanitarian situation, because you have thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Yemeni families for whom the, you know, remittances from their relatives and friends, mainly in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, but also beyond. I mean, there are largish Yemeni communities in Britain and the US, uh, smaller ones in France and other countries have played a major role in helping their families and their relatives survive the situation and the problems in Yemen. And, you know, although the when the US made the designation, they used the term carve out to help humanitarian, uh, to supposedly not reduce the humanitarian support. You know, it's only three days ago that Western Union have announced that they are not carrying out any more transfers to Yemen, which is something that will affect, you know, families who want to send money. And they've already had great difficulties sending money towards, you know, in Houthi-controlled areas for many, many years through banking systems. But, you know, this will merely be another additional factor making things very difficult. As a final question, and this is very broad, of course, but perhaps you could say something about what you expect to see happening next is the situation going to carry on as it is at present? Is there going to be new developments, new escalations in one direction or another? Predictions, not my my favorite uh, activity. <laughs> I've never been a great one for for predicting things. My feeling is that. 
you know, the Houthis have been very, very explicit. We will stop attacking ships in the Red Sea when the Gaza war ends and when humanitarian supplies are allowed into Gaza. And so, of course, should that war be settled, I believe, and I know others who also agree, that the Houthis will actually stop their actions. Now, in theory, if that happens, that means that the US and the UK should also stop bombing Yemen, which would also be another piece of good news. But I mean, you know, whether anything can happen in the next few months uh, on the Gaza front is really very, very difficult to assess. I mean, in my view, personally, there's nothing will happen until they've managed to replace the Israeli prime minister by somebody who might be more reasonable. How likely that is, I, I wouldn't like to say. So other than that, I think, you know, the current situation will continue. I suspect the humanitarian situation and living conditions for people in Yemen will definitely continue to deteriorate. I suspect the likelihood of the US and the UK doing what the Presidential Leadership Council is asking them to do, i.e. give them more support to fight the Houthis. I think that's unlikely. I think there may be some additional support, but not very much, and probably not enough for them to actually defeat the Houthis. I think the Houthis' military strength is too great for the PLC and its elements to defeat them, and particularly as the PLC you know, continues to be a completely divided entity. I mean, we didn't really talk about that, but basically the reason it has seven vice presidents is because they represent a number of different factions that are spend more time disagreeing with each other and, and rivals to each other than they do focusing on fighting the Houthis. So I think the likelihood of the PLC and the internationally recognized government actually reaching a situation and a capacity where they could defeat the Houthis is pretty low, I would say. So I think if, you know, if things settle down in some form or shape in the Middle East, and I think that will probably be a very different image from the current one, there'll be an attempt to resume the deal between the Houthis and the Saudis. And it will then basically bring Yemen back to where it would have been in 2015 if the international coalition hadn't got involved in the civil war. So one would have had nine years or more of fighting, of internal fighting and destruction to basically end up with an attempt to solve the political problems and either politically or militarily between the Houthis and what I now call the anti-Houthis, which is the collection of elements in opposition to the Houthis. But I think one element that's very important and possibility is if you look at, you know, how things might end and whether the fact that the Saudis are now reviving the 2002 Arab peace plan and are now sound as if they're saying that is really their bottom line. If that is revived and through some extraordinary miracle actually happens, it would very much change the world or the Middle East vision or the street vision of the Saudis in the Arab world. And that would also affect, I think, the Yemen situation to some extent. But I think also, you know, the, the fact that 
the regional supporters of the PLC have been incredibly feeble in their support, and that means primarily the Saudis and secondarily the Emiratis, because the Emiratis are actually undermining the attempt to have a peaceful solution in Yemen and are undermining the Saudi efforts to have a solution in Yemen. So I think you really have an ongoing potential rivalry continuing within Yemen between those two states, which will prevent a positive solution to the Yemen situation. Many thanks to Helen Lackner for that account of the situation in Yemen. You can also read several articles that she's written for us about what's been happening over the last four months on the Jacobin website.